Please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. And we're continuing our series on the book of Judges, and I just want to thank Pastor Eric. Did he do an amazing job last Sunday? I have heard, I know, I, I have heard so much, I mean... I'm going to church with Abby and Kenny and their family out at National NCC, National Community Church, out in Washington, D.C., where they go. And uh, as soon as service is over here, my phone starts lighting up with everybody saying great, great stuff. Just so proud of Eric. And, uh, and, and they were texting me things that did hurt my feelings, like, Glenn, why don't you take another week of vacation? Or, you know, Glenn, you've been looking a little tired lately. Maybe a whole sabbatical is what you need. But anyway, really appreciate that. And be sure to listen to that online as he finished up part two of uh, Gideon. Uh, now, the judges are mainly military and political leaders and not court judges. The main exception to that was a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Deborah, and she was more of a court judge. But judges are primarily military and political leaders, not court judges. Now, the reason I wanted to use, you guys know I love humor, and I wanted to do a little bit here at the beginning because there is not much humor in this story. This is uh, such a dark and disturbing story. I have to admit, I'm kind of glad it's a holiday weekend. I've got the hardcore people here this weekend, uh, the spiritual Marines. I've got the spiritual veterans on Veterans Day weekend. And so I'm kind of glad about that because this is, this is a hard one. And the title we're going to use is Hot Dog Faith. And it's stolen from J.D. Greer. He's the one doing the video intros in your life groups that go along with this sermon series. And, and, I, and, and I just thought it was such an appropriate title that I took it from him. A Hot Dog Faith. Americans love hot dogs. Uh, on the 4th of July, we as a country ate 150 million of them in one day. We love our hot dogs. And, and I want you to know, I'm a hot dog lover. You say, Glenn, just looking at you, we know that you must be a hot dog lover. But if you've ever looked at the package of the contents of a hot dog, you'll see something like this. The first component is, quote, mechanically separated turkey, which the USDA defines as a paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure. It's a process they call advanced meat recovery. Isn't that advanced meat recovery? Uh, Going to meet all of you for lunch at Schnitzel after this is over. Uh, you know what, Tina? Do we have hot dogs for the, the starting point class, right? Is that right? Yeah. No, no, we don't. No hot dogs served at the starting point class uh, here today. Um, the other ingredients are corn syrup, beef, salt, sodium phosphate, sodium erythrobate, sodium nitrate, and maltodextrin. Um, I asked my wife, Kimberly, to pick up the most disgusting hot dog she could find. My assistant, Tina, is going to hand this uh, to me here. Let me, and, and Kimberly, it's, it's, it's beef chorizo. Am I chorizo? Am I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, people are laughing, even as I. And uh, here, let's see if I can read just the first two. The main two ingredients, the first two ingredients is beef salivary glands and lymph nodes. So there you got some lymph nodes and you got some salivary glands. Now, uh, Here's the main point of all this. A hot dog is not pure meat. And everybody in unison said, duh, Glenn. Thanks for you. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, and many would say that this is not 
good, good for you, right? You know, Pastor Lisa, you probably have never had one of these touch your lips, have you? You know, hot dog, touch your lips. Uh, many would say this is not healthy for you. Now, many Americans, while we're using this title, many Americans build their faith like a cheap hot dog. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it ends up with a concoction that is not really Christian. And it's not just bad for you like a regular hot dog, it can be spiritually toxic. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Jephthah today, and really what we're going to see for the remainder of the book of Judges, you're going to see this kind of uh, hot dog faith going on. Uh, Judges 10, verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They serve, let's count them, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So seven different gods they were running after. A seven in Hebrew is the number of completion, so it means that Israel has completely abandoned God. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. That's what sin will do to you. That's what running away from God will do to you. It'll shatter us. It'll crush us. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Now what we're going to see for the remainder of the book of Judges, in the first part of Judges, they would, what we call syncretism. They would mix kind of the worship of these other gods with the worship of the true God. But now what we're going to see for the rest of the way in Judges is they're going to completely abandon God and completely follow after these other gods. Now you say, Glenn, how does this apply to me? I'm not very tempted to have a statue of Baal in my garage and bow down to it every night before I go to bed. Now remember the definition of an idol. An idol is whatever you look to for power and joy and significance apart from God. An idol is whatever I look to for power and joy and significance apart from God. I can't be happy if I don't have it. I'm obsessed about not having it. And when I finally get it, I start to feel like I never have enough of it. And I'm always worried about losing it. Um, uh, you make destructive choices to keep it or to get more of it. Uh, for example, I need more money, so I work until I destroy my family uh, to get more money, or I cheat, or I bend the rules, cut corners to get more money. Uh, I need a satisfying relationship, so I leave my family uh, to find that what I'm thinking is going to be a more satisfying relationship. I have to be beautiful to have power and significance and joy, so I starve my body uh, to reach a certain size and then hate myself when I'm not there. Uh, have, have you ever stopped? God wants us to stop this morning and consider maybe the idol itself is wrong. Maybe we're going after the wrong thing. That's why we're, we're dissatisfied in life. Maybe the reason you're unhappy in love is not because you haven't found Mr. Right, but because ultimate happiness isn't going to be found in him anyway. Or maybe the reason your spouse complains that you're not the same now that you're successful, that she doesn't enjoy being married to you, even though you make lots of money, is because you've become its slave, and, and it's changed you. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 13 is one of the clearest descriptions of sin in the Bible. 
God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See, these are the two, the two sins. Uh, we, we, um, we, we leave God, we forsake God, uh, we reject God, and then we replace God. They've forsaken me, we reject God, they've dug their own cisterns, we try to replace God. And so life has become about desperately digging one cistern after another. Uh, this new relationship, this SAT score, some of you students say, you know, if I could just get to this SAT score, all the dominoes will fall. Everything will fall into place in my life. Uh, this achievement, this level of income. And so we dig and we dig and we dig. And we go deeper, deeper, deeper. And we say, there's got to be permanent water here, here somewhere. And God cries out to us and says, call time out. <coughs> it's the wrong well. We're digging the wrong well. It's not a matter of just finding the right cistern or digging deeper in the cistern we're already in. He said, it, it's, the wrong, it's the wrong well. It'll never hold water for you. Uh, verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Now that sounds like true repentance, but it's not, as we're going to see in a moment. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? I mean, remember all the other times you were in trouble, and you called out to God, didn't God come through for you? But we still drift back to sin again and again, like the Israelites. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. They're like, what? What? Uh, every time this pattern, this cycle goes on and judges, they, they drift from God, uh, they go through hard times, they cry out to God, God always saves them. And this time he says, no, not going to do it. Why not? Because this isn't true repentance. They don't want God for God. They're just in pain. And they want somebody, anybody, to make the pain stop. They're basically saying to God, let me use you to get out of this trouble I'm in. Now, this, this is something that's interesting to remember today. It is possible to come to God in an idolatrous way. See, we either follow idols or we go to the one true God, but it's actually possible, even in pursuing the one true God, to pursue him in an idolatrous way. Here's the question I want to ask myself and everyone here. Are you using God or are you worshiping God? Are you using God or are you worshiping God? Sometimes we'll say about a person that followed God for years and then, and then dumped him. We'll say, well, what happened to that person's faith? Well, it wasn't real to begin with. You see, they weren't worshiping God. They were using God. And as soon as it got hard to follow him or uncomfortable, or as soon as God asked them to believe certain things that they didn't particularly care for, and, and as soon as it became unpopular... They ditched him because they weren't truly worshiping God. They were using God. Boy, I tell you, that song that Jarrett taught us today, that second song in, oh my goodness, that was written for this sermon. One of these days we're going to get organized enough to do it on our own. <laughs> okay, but, but God just put it together this morning. 
And I actually sent word back to, could we use that song as we close today? Because that is exactly, that song that he taught us is all about not using God, but worshiping God. And when we worship God, we say, God, you know, you do your thing, whatever it is with me. I don't want to use you. I want to worship you. And finally, the Israelites get this. Check it out in verse 15. He says, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Do you see this right here? Here are the ways that we know that, that it's real. Do with us whatever you think best. God, I want you for you. Now you do with me whatever, whatever you think, whatever you think best. Okay? Uh, then it goes on to say, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them. So God, I want to follow you for you, not just use you, whatever that means in my life. And I'm going to get rid of the foreign gods among them and serve the Lord. And I love this last line. And he, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. God's heart always responds to true repentance. Whenever we say, God, I want you, whatever comes I want you. Oh God, whatever it means, I'm going to put these other things aside and I'm going to pursue you. God's heart always responds to that kind of repentance. Now, so many times we present Christianity in this way, and please forgive me if as your pastor I, I, I've ever shared it this way, but something like this, I came to Jesus and my marriage turned awesome overnight. And the next day my, God, my boss gave me a raise and the day after that, I discovered oil under my house. I mean, just like, man, yay, Jesus. Do you know that in the Bible, now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, life got harder when you chose to follow Jesus, not easier? You know, in the Bible, God routinely lets people go through trouble as they are coming back to him to see if they really want him for himself or if they're just using him to get out of the trouble they're in. And he does the same thing today. Don't be surprised by it. Now we meet Jephthah, chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So he becomes like a crime lord, crime boss. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Now we uh, continue now with verse 29. And this is one of the most debated passages that we're going to look at right now by Bible scholars in all the Bible. This is one of the hardest ones to completely understand what's going on. There's a debate between two different interpretations of it, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's look at the story. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, 
And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. God didn't ask him to do this. He did it on his own. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph for the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now he thought it would, maybe it was going to be an animal or one of his servants. And, you know, he sacrificed one of his servants. That was the risk he was willing to take to win the battle. All right. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Kirin. Thus, Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, as I said before, this is one of the most debated passages by Bible scholars. There is a hard interpretation and what I would call a soft interpretation. And I believe that each have equal support. I, I believe, as I've studied this, you know, that, that each one of these has equal support to them. The hard interpretation is that he actually did human sacrifice and sacrificed his daughter. Uh, the soft interpretation is that he didn't actually sacrifice her. But he had her stay unmarried uh, for the rest of her life and be totally devoted to God, uh, kind of like a Catholic nun would do today, or like a Christian today chooses to stay single, uh, like Paul did in the New Testament, in order to serve Christ with all their time and energy. And some of the reasons, I was talking to somebody after the first service, one of the reasons we believe in the soft interpretation is Jephthah ends up in the hall of faith uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And so it's hard to believe that God would put him in the hall of faith if he did human sacrifice, which was a direct violation of his command. So that's the soft interpretation. But I'm going to assume for the remainder of this study, the harder of the two. Let's, let's assume for the remainder of this message that he actually did human sacrifice and sacrificed his daughter. Now, a couple of questions. Why did Jephthah make this vow? Well, number one, this is how you pleased pagan gods. Uh, you would sacrifice to gain their favor, and the greater the sacrifice you made, the greater favor uh, you earned. Now, just about every ancient culture in world history has practiced human sacrifice except for the Old Testament. And the Old Testament seems so violent to us, and we talked about the beginning of Judges, how we wrestle with the violence that we find in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Judges, and we talked about that. But I want you to know, compared to the other cultures, this might be cold comfort, but compared to the others, it is a gracious, love-filled book compared to the others. I want you to know. Uh, the, uh, and one of the things that's remarkable about it 
is it's commanded against human sacrifice. It stands in stark contract to almost every other world civilization all around the world practice human sacrifice at some point except for what we find in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. God said, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire because this was the custom of the Canaanites when they were going into that land. Who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens or engages in witchcraft. And so in stark contrast, uh, God forbids human sacrifice. You say, well, what about Abraham? Well, God didn't allow him to follow through on that. And what Abraham thought was going to happen is he thought he was going to be killing Isaac, but then God was going to bring him back to life like God did uh, 4,000 years later uh, with his own son, or 2,000 years later with his own son, uh, Jesus. So that was a test of faith and obedience, and God didn't allow him to go through it. So this is what we call hot dog faith. When you look at Jephthah, it looks like the pure meat of faith. You look at this and say, wow, look at the guy's commitment. Look how all in he was. Look, look what he was willing uh, to, to sacrifice. It looked like the pure meat of faith. But it was a mixture of sodium phosphate and poultry paste and salivary glands and lymph nodes. It was hot dog faith. Then number two, because he was desensitized to violence. Uh, human life was incredibly cheap in the time of the judges. Okay, and we, but let's not be too judgmental about them, should we? Have we become desensitized to violence? Every second, a person somewhere in the world dies from hunger. And we know that statistic, or we've heard statistics like it. And we get desensitized to it, that every second, a person somewhere in the world dies from hunger. Every second... The one and a half abortions take place somewhere in the world. Every second, one second, one second, one second. Somebody dies from hunger every second. One and a half abortions take place worldwide. And so he had become desensitized to violence, and we become desensitized to violence. Why did Jephthah keep his vow? He kept it for the exact same reason he made it. He felt that he had to earn God's favor. He sits there for two months to think about this while she's with her friends out in the wilderness. And he's got two months to think about his stupid decision, and he still goes through with it. Should he have kept the vow? Absolutely not. He should have come to God and say, God, I repent of thinking that I could buy your favor. I repent of that. Please forgive me. Number two, there's only one way to please God. Only one, and that is faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. J.D. Greer says, there is only one deal God will ever make his righteousness for your absolute surrender. There is only one deal God will ever make his righteousness for your absolute Surrender. This is the pure meat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a chance. Don't be too happy. There's still more of the sermon yet to go. But let me just take a little time out here. Do you want to receive that gift right now? 
Do you, do you want to realize that you can get off the treadmill? You don't have to earn it like Jephthah thought. He thought he had to earn God's favor by doing extreme things. And maybe you think you've got to earn God's favor by following a list of do's and avoid a list of don'ts. And, and, and you can earn God's favor by following a certain rituals or doing certain chants or certain, doing certain religious duties. You can get off of that and simply receive his gift. There's only one deal God will ever make. And that is his righteousness uh, for our complete surrender. Number one, if you look there in front of you in the book rack, you'll see this. And you could take this home with you if you'd like to. And it says resource, how to become a follower of Jesus. You admit your condition before God, just like the Israelites did. They said, God, we want you for you, not as a tool to get us out of our trouble. We want you, but we've sinned and we fall short of your standards. Number two, we believe that Jesus is, is God's solution to that condition. He's the one that can be a bridge from a perfect God to an imperfect us, the result of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number three, we choose to follow Christ. Jesus gave us his life on the cross as a bridge, and Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word, that's what you've been doing right now. Or maybe you're in Arco, or maybe you're in Kalispell, or maybe you're online and you're hearing God's word right now, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And I want you to pray this prayer silently with me as I pray it out loud. Just a way to say, I receive this gift. Would you pray with me silently as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was. And he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. I receive you right now as my Lord and Savior. I want you. I don't want to just use you to fix my problems. I just don't want to use you to get out of trouble I want you. As the Israelites said, do with me whatever you see fit in my life. Take the pen and write my story for me. I put away these other cisterns and I want to follow you. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Now if you prayed that prayer, our prayer room after the service is over, is right over here to my left on the main floor, um, to my left, to your right, and there are people that would just love to talk with you about that decision if you just receive that free gift that God wants to give to you. Now, I want to skip these next passages, Judges 12, Judges 8, and Proverbs 15, verse 1, that you see there in your study outline. And let me give you a little bit of an assignment, because these make a beautiful little Bible study. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 1 is the biblical principle. Judges 12 is how Jephthah is a bad example of that principle. And Judges 8 is Gideon is a good example of that principle. And so I encourage you maybe for family devotions over lunch or, t or tonight or tomorrow over dinner, maybe personal time in God's Word, uh, tonight before you go to bed or tomorrow morning when you wake up, maybe in your life group you want to drill deeper into the story of Jephthah, I encourage you to take those three passages and they're just a beautiful little Bible study. You look at the principle from Proverbs 
15, verse 1, a bad example of it in Judges 12 with Jephthah, a good example of it in Judges 8 with, um, uh, with Gideon. Okay, let's do four takeaways as we begin to come down the home stretch. Number one, we are far more influenced by our culture than we realize. We, we need to just remember this. We are far more influenced by our culture than we realize. My blind spots have blind spots. I'm telling you. Um, when I first went to Wheaton College, started out as a freshman, every freshman had to take a class called Christ and Culture. Everybody had to take that. And it was asking the question, as a follower of Christ, how do we engage with our surrounding culture? And there are three approaches you can take. Number one is to integrate uncritically. That is, whatever your culture is for, I'm for it too. And that's Jephthah. And that's what we call hot dog faith. Now, the opposite extreme is to reject it altogether. If the culture says go east, I go west. If it says go north, I, I go south. And those of you that grew up um, in the 60s and 70s, you know, what, you know what this is like. If the culture said, if the culture had long hair, what were young men supposed to have in the 60s and 70s? Short hair. Oh, I wish I still could debate that theological uh, issue, man. I tell you, just any hair at all would be just great. But uh, believe it or not, I had long hair back in the 60s, 70s. I had long, but, but that was the cultural thing. If the culture said this way, you went the other way. I never saw a movie until I was 20 years old. And everybody thinks I'm making up for lost time now, ever since. Never saw a movie until I was 20 years old. Because that was, uh, you know, that was Hollywood and that was Satan stuff. And so you went the opposite direction. Rock and roll music. Uh, you know, that was the devil's music until um, uh, Larry Norman, a Californian, um, had blonde hair down to his uh, behind back there. He sang that great song, that song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And uh, he really was just quoting Martin Luther, who said it 400, 500 years before then, why should the devil have all the good music? But if the culture liked rock and roll, then Christians were supposed to do the opposite of rock and roll. And so both of them are wrong. Um, you, you integrate uncritically or to reject altogether. What you want is something in the middle. You enter into engaging your culture, but you do it critically. And I don't mean critically meaning criticize it. It means you analyze it. You say, this is what I can affirm about my culture, and this is what I reject about my culture. And so you affirm that which can be affirmed, and you reject that which you can reject. Uh, Pastor Sham uh, had one of our missionaries, Ruth Mooney, from Costa Rica, speak to the staff a couple of Tuesdays ago. And she is this awesome awesome lady, and a professor at the top seminary in Latin and South America, and she said one of their main things they're, they're studying at that seminary is, in Latin American and South American culture, what parts of the culture can we affirm, and what parts of the culture do we need to reject? And, and, and she's, she's figuring that out, and, and by the way, that's what I love about giving. Do you know that part of your offering just a few minutes ago went for her salary, Oh my goodness, and, and a thousand other things like it that you can check out the budget uh, back at the information center and see all the things, the thousand different ways that it impacts the world for Christ. And as we heard this dynamic lady speak, we're like, this is true. Part of your giving went to help a professor right now in Latin America help young pastors figure out what in their culture should they affirm, what should they reject as they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I listened to her, it made me realize, you know what, we are all missionaries to our culture. Every one of us here, do you know that you are all missionaries? Every one of us are missionaries to our Southern California American culture. And as missionaries, we need to do exactly the same thing. We need to figure out what do we affirm in our culture 
and what do we reject in our culture? Not rejecting all of it, not grabbing hold of all of it, but uh, connecting with it, affirming some, rebuking others uh, as we uh, integrate with it. Now, we have blind spots. And like I said, my blind spots have blind spots. Uh, sometimes we just ignore certain parts of the Bible because we don't like them. If you go to Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia, you see the birthplace of Thomas Jefferson. And here's a copy of his Bible. Do you see what Thomas Jefferson did? He just cut out certain parts of the Bible he didn't like. How many of you wish you could do that? How many wish God just said, I'll give you 10 pages you can cut out? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? You know, that'd be a fun discussion, wouldn't it? Um, you know, so, so anyway, I, I actually joked about that at an ordination process once. And they almost threw me out. So at any rate, you know, which I, I asked the candidate, if there's one part of the Bible you wish wasn't in there, what would it be? And they teased me about that to this day. So at any rate, you could just cut out certain, certain parts of it, all right? Um, and, and, and this is what we do. I, I tell you, one of the most depressing things I saw was on Monday. Uh, inspiring and yet depressing about our blindness towards our culture and how our culture influences us more than we realize. Um, Monday, I went with my daughter, Abby, and Felicity. We went to the, um, the new Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And I want to tell you, it is awesome. Next time you're in Washington, D.C., you got to go to the Bible Museum. It is state-of-the-art. It is the fanciest museum in Washington, D.C. now. And it's all about the incredible impact, more than any other influence in all of world history, of God's Word. It's just, just phenomenal. But it is also very, very honest. And that is depressing sometimes. They had a Bible on display there, which was a special Bible that the slave owners made for the slaves which cut out everything in the Bible that talked about gaining your freedom. So the whole book of Exodus cut right out, you know, because it was the slaves coming out of Egypt and being freed. The book of Philemon cut out. Anything in the Bible that talked about freedom, it was cut out. All they left in was the part about being submissive uh, to those that you're your masters and those that you work for. And it was a specially made Bible just for the slaves. And as I looked at that, I said, oh God, what are the blind spots I have in my culture right now? I'm so judgmental of these people, but oh God, what will people in years to come or when we get to heaven, what are things in my life? And, and you know, I came up with a few that I was thinking about, but the, the mere fact that I came up with them means they're probably not in my blind spot, all right? The ones I didn't come up with are the ones that I need to come up with. And maybe you could, I'm sure you can come up with many yourself, but I thought about things like materialism. We buy stuff now at an unprecedented rate while people around the world die of nutrition, malnutrition. Um, or, or followers of Christ. We buy stuff at an unprecedented rate while people go to hell for lack of a Christian witness. How about the blind spot of racism? I'm not racist. There's no way I could be racist. I'm, I'm not racist. I mean, I, I can't be No, no. It's in your blind spot, Glenn. It's, it's over here. And God will shine a light on that every once in a while. How about sexual immorality? Is there ever an area where we simply are in danger of adopting the customs of the culture around us? Then sexual immorality. I mean, hot dog faith, like Jephthah. And there's only one solution, and it's found in Psalm 119, 105. God's word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. It is only God's word. That's why we got to be in it. Every day, now I'm going to sound like an old-fashioned Baptist preacher, you got to be in church every Sunday. 
You just do, unless you're super sick. You know, there's, there's church sick and then there's work sick. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you gotta, you gotta be under God's word, man. You gotta be in Sunday school classes. You gotta be in, in Bible classes. You gotta be in, in life groups, in small groups. Every day, you gotta be opening up and reading it. Your children have gotta be in Sunday school. And, and Awana and children's ministries and youth ministries. You gotta have men, because they are being bombarded with cultural messages. And our only hope is to be so into God's word that it is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path to navigate all the cultural pressures or we end up with hot dog faith like Jephthah. Number two, our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. Uh, Jephthah's uh, hot dog faith had devastating effects for his daughter. His daughter paid a price. The impurity of my faith, whenever I look, whenever I hold a grandchild, I'm like, oh, Lord, what are the impurities in my faith that are going to negatively impact my children, my wife, Kimberly, my grandchildren? Number three, God's grace is a hard thing to grasp. Every world philosophy, every religion of the world, including the religion of Christianity, is all about D.O., what we must do to be right with God. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ is it not D-O, it's D-O-N-E, what Christ has done for us. The only exchange, the only deal you can make with God is his righteousness for my complete surrender. Let's have the praise band come back up. Number four, we need a better judge. And here's a reoccurring theme in the book of Judges. Jephthah was a savior, but he was a very broken savior. Each of the judges gives us a picture of a of a future better judge. Like Jephthah, Jesus was driven from his brothers. It says he was despised and rejected by other people. But unlike Jephthah, they didn't have to beg him to come back to save him. He came running back to save us because he couldn't bear to see us suffer anymore. Jephthah believed we could only find favor through extreme sacrifice. Jesus offers favor with God as a free gift because of the price paid by God himself in Christ. Jephthah was a broken savior, but he points us to Jesus, the perfect savior who was broken for the broken. The pure meat of the gospel is the grace of God received as a free gift. Faith in the grace of God is the only way to health in our walk with Christ. Rejecting hot dog faith for the real thing. The gospel, the pure meat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand together. And Jared, I'm so sorry that I switched out your songs. I think when you hear the sermon, you're going to be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When, back to the point that I made before about our culture influences us more than we realize. This is the prayer. This song right here that we just learned this morning. Is God's timing awesome or what? This song, this song right here is just such a prayer perfect prayer to end our time with. Oh God, I, we want you for you, not for how we can use you for our own purposes. We want you for you. And, and, and like the Israelites said, whatever you see fit to do with us, do it. Oh God, we're seeking you with all of our heart. We just want you, whatever that means, where you say go, we'll go. When you say stay, we'll stay. 
here we are, Lord. This is our prayer this morning.